أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته I'd like to welcome you all back to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad. So we've reached the point in the biography of the Prophet where Rasulullah after emigrating from Mecca to Medina, the Prophet as we mentioned, when he escaped the assassination attempt, he traveled south and he hid in the cave of Thor, Mount Thor. And he did that to, to divert and to escape the eyes of Quraysh. They assumed that his journey would be north from Mecca. So he goes, he takes a detour. He stays for about three days in the cave of Thor. He's accompanied by Abu Bakr. And we mentioned uh, you know, uh, some of the reasons why he was there. And the Prophet ﷺ, he travels for 12 days and he arrives in Quba. The Prophet ﷺ does not enter the city of Medina. He stays in this village known as Quba. And Quba is situated approximately three and a half kilometers south of Medina. And he remains there for some time and he stays with Banu Amr ibn Auf. He stays with this clan and they belong to the, the tribe of Aus. And the Prophet is adamant on waiting for Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, as we mentioned the Imam السلام, was commanded by the Prophet to remain in Mecca, to pay some debts or to return the deposits that were with him and also to bring the Fawatim, to bring the three Fatimas safely to Medina. Now, Quba is technically not a part of Medina. Now today, if you go to Medina, Quba is considered a part of Medina. But during the time of the Prophet, it was a separate region. It was a small village. And what made the village of Quba significant was because this area had many wells. It was a very important water source for the people of Medina. And you can imagine because of its uh, bountiful water, it was... Uh, it was lush with uh, with ve- with vegetation and uh, and greenery. What is mentioned in the seerah of the Prophet is that when the Prophet arrives in Quba, there are a number of things that happen, and there are a few notable conversions that take place. There are certain people who convert to Islam upon the Prophet's arrival in Medina. And I'll mention just three of them, because I think that you know these are some of the most important uh, conversions that 
take place uh, in the first uh, few weeks or even months in the uh, in, in the Medani period. So you have three individuals who convert to Islam. Some say that they converted when the Prophet was in Quba. Others mentioned that they converted perhaps a little bit later. Uh, but the point is that it happened very early on in the Medani period, shortly after the Prophet arrives. The first is Salman al-Farisi. The second is Abdullah ibn Salam, and we'll mention who he is and why his conversion was significant. And thirdly, the conversion of Safiya. And this is the same Safiya who later on ends up marrying the Prophet She becomes one of the wives of the Prophet. So these individuals, they accept Islam as soon as the Prophet arrives in Quba. So we begin with the conversion of Salman al-Farisi. Now I don't want to go into too much detail because his conversion story is rather lengthy. But, I'll, but in brief, I'll just mention uh, some of the, uh, the most important points. Now the conversion of Salman al-Farisi to Islam is mentioned in elaborate detail in Sunni and uh, Shi'i uh, hadith literature. It's mentioned in the books of history. And as you know, Salman was a Persian and he had anticipated the coming of a prophet and he ends up, he arrives, he comes to Quba to catch a glimpse of the prophet Now at the time that Salman sees the prophet in Quba, he's a slave. Now Salman of course, was not born. He was not born uh, into a family that was enslaved. Salman actually hails from a very prominent family, uh, a Zoroastrian family, and he lived and he grew up near modern-day Isfahan. His father, Salman al-Farisi's father, was a Zoroastrian priest. They were a very devout. Uh, devout family but Salman from a young age he did not find the religion of uh, Zoroastrianism convincing and therefore at a young age he comes in contact with some Christian scholars with some priests and he ends up converting to Christianity at a young age you know as a teenager he converts to Christianity his family is appalled and some historical accounts mention that he was actually imprisoned by his own family for apostating, for abandoning uh, Zoroastrianism. But Salman was committed and he was determined to find the truth. You know, he is the quintessential uh, truth seeker. And he spends the rest of his life searching for the truth. And he travels and he becomes quite learned in the Christian tradition. And he learns that there is an Abrahamic prophet who would appear in Arabia. And this was prophesied by the, the Eastern churches. 
And he travels quite a bit. When you read the biography of Salman al-Farisi, you see that you know he travels from Persia, he goes to Syria, he travels to Iraq. But after an unfortunate event, he was sold into slavery. And he was sold to a Jewish merchant in Yathrib. But even then, even as a slave, he did not give up. He's, he was thirsty to know the truth. He knew that there would be a, a final messenger of God who would, uh, who would appear. And from the scriptures that he had studied for all of his life, he knew that the hijrah of this prophet would be to Yathrib. And this is why many of these, uh, this is why there is a Jewish diaspora in, uh, in Medina. So, Salman al-Farisi, he meets the Prophet. So as a slave, he goes, it seems that he was running some errands. He goes and he sees the Prophet. And he meets the Prophet. He confirms that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is indeed, there were certain signs that he was looking for. He confirms the Prophet's identity. And he returns to Yathrib. The Prophet is in Quba. Salman sees him in Quba. And he returns. He has to return because he has a master, he's a slave. And, but he has a hope in his heart that he will see the Prophet once again. So when the Prophet is in Quba, Salman al-Farisi sees him and it seems that at this time he becomes a, a Muslim. The second individual who converts during this period is a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Salam. This individual was actually one of the ulama of Bani Israel. He was a Jewish scholar. And he belonged to the tribe of Banu Qaynuqa'ah. I know that's not an easy uh, you know, uh, word to pronounce, but Banu Qaynuqa', they were one of the prominent Jewish tribes in, in Yathrib, in Medina, and in the surrounding areas. And keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that in Yathrib, in Medina, there are three major Jewish tribes. Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayda. So, the conversion of Abdullah ibn Salam is important. Because this is the first time, this is the first time you have not just a Jew converting to Islam. This is a Jewish scholar who has converted to Islam. Now, Shaykh al-Tabrasi, Shaykh al-Tabrasi, he believes and he says that Abdullah ibn Salam actually converted when the Prophet was still in Mecca. And this seems to fit with the verse that was revealed relating and mentioning the conversion of Abdullah ibn Salam. Ibn Hisham, who is a Sunni uh, historian, he says that he converted, Abdullah ibn Salam converted when the Prophet was in Quba. In any case, this Abdullah ibn Salam, his conversion is actually mentioned in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah 46, verse 10. And there is an agreement that this is a Meccan surah. And this is why Shaykh al-Tabarsi believes that Abdullah ibn Salam 
converted in Mecca. So what does the verse say? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ إِنْ كَانَ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ وَكَفَرْتُمْ بِهِ وَشَهِدَ شَاهِدٌ مِنْ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ عَلَى مِثْلِهِ فَآمَنَ وَاسْتَكْبَرْتُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَهْدِ الْقَوْمَ الظَّالِمِينَ Allah says, say to them, O Muhammad, have you considered if the Qur'an was from God? Can you at least entertain the possibility that this is the word of God and take it seriously? At least be objective. And then what does the Qur'an say? Have you considered if the Qur'an was from God and you disbelieved in it while a witness from the children of Israel has testified to something similar and believed while you were ignorant? This witness from the children of Israel who believed was Abdullah ibn Salam. And it seems that it's very likely that he converted because, if you recall, brothers and sisters, in, when the Prophet was in Mecca, one of the opposition tactics that Quraysh used was they would consult with Jewish scholars and they would gather some difficult questions to ask the Prophet in, in hopes of discrediting him. They would seek the counsel of some of the rabbis, some of the Jewish scholars, and they would say to these Jewish scholars that there's a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, he's claiming to be a prophet. Is there any way that we can discredit him and prove that he's a false prophet? So the rabbis, they gave them some questions that could not be answered by someone who's not a prophet. And Surah Al-Kahf, for example, Surah Al-Kahf is a Meccan Surah. And Surah Al-Kahf is a response to some of those questions that were posed to the Prophet through Quraysh, but the questions were given to them by Jewish rabbis, by the scholars of Bani Israel. And some of those questions were relating to the Qarnayn, you know, ask him about the Qarnayn, you know, what, what is his story? If he's a true prophet, he would know. Ask Muhammad about the, the sleepers of the cave, the youth who slept in a cave. See what he says about them. If he's a false prophet, he's not going to know. These are This is secret knowledge that's contained in the ancient scriptures. Ask him about that individual that Musa met, that great sage who met with Musa. And ask him about the ruh and see what he says. In any case, these questions were being posed to the Prophet And some of those questions were formulated by Abdullah ibn Salam. And as the ayat are being revealed, and Abdullah ibn Salam sees that this knowledge would is impossible for someone to know unless they are indeed chosen by God. So Abdullah ibn Salam, he converts to Islam and uh, his conversion either took place in Mecca or in Quba. So this is the, the second uh, notable conversion uh, that I wanted to mention. And then number three, we have the conversion of Safiyya. 
Safiya, the daughter of Huyay, and she belonged to the tribe of Banu Nadir. And she converts because she overhears her father and her uncle talking about the Prophet. And in their private conversations, they did not they probably did not publicize this. They did not admit it. But amongst themselves, they affirmed, they conceded that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is indeed the final messenger of God. So when she overheard this, she accepted Islam. And she later on marries the Prophet. So when the Prophet, as we will discuss inshallah in the future, when the Prophet conquers Khaybar, he uh, ends up marrying uh, Safiya. So, when the Prophet is in Quba, you have to understand, brothers and sisters, how relieved the Prophet was to be in a place where he has the, the freedom to practice Islam. When the Muslims were in Mecca, the Prophet and his followers, they were in survival mode. Every day, someone would be attacked or abused or killed. And the issue of safety and security was a priority for the Muslims. This is the first time that the Prophet ﷺ has the freedom to pray in congregation with his companions without the fear of any abuse. You know, they used to pray in, in, in Mecca. They used to come together, but there was, there was always a fear of attack, of harassment. So being in Quba was like a breath of fresh air. There was an atmosphere of freedom. There was a lot of hope. The Muslims were quite hopeful. In Mecca, the future of Islam looked quite grim. But in Quba and in Medina, the possibilities were endless. Now in some sources, it is mentioned that Ammar ibn Yasir, actually proposes the idea of building a masjid in Quba. <clears throat> Others say that no, it was the Prophet who suggested it. In any case, the decision is made for a masjid to be built in Quba, in this village which is three and a half kilometers south of Medina, of Yathrib. Now, it's debated it's debated between the scholars as to who actually made the suggestion, but that's not important, whether it was the Prophet or Ammar. The point is the Prophet, either he made the suggestion or he endorsed and accepted the suggestion of Ammar ibn Yasir. Now Ammar, uh, of course, he's one of the Muhajireen. Uh, he lost his, his parents in Mecca, and this is a man who had, whose family had sacrificed a lot for Islam. Ammar ibn Yasir was so passionate that he becomes the main person, the main figure who takes charge of building Masjid Quba. You know, if we want to think of it, if we want to use you know modern terms, he was the project manager appointed by the Prophet to oversee the construction of Masjid Quba. And Ammar Ammar ibn Yasir actually finds a plot of land 
an area for the masjid which is in the neighborhood of Banu Amr ibn Auf, which is where the Prophet is staying. The Prophet is actually staying with uh, this clan. Ammar, according to the narrations, he brings stones. And it seems that these stones, uh, they want to uh, delineate the, the border of the, of the masjid. You know, before you build, you have to have a blueprint. You have to know exactly what the dimensions are going to be, what the size of the masjid is going to be. So the Prophet ﷺ, he welcomed the idea and he conducted the groundbreaking uh, ceremony. Now how, now specifically, how was Masjid Quba built? There's a very interesting uh, narration that says, وَرَدَ أَنَّهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَدْ أَمَرَ أَبَا بَكْرٍ بِأَنْ يَرْكَبَ النَّاقَةِ The Prophet صلى الله عليه وآله So now the Prophet has to outline the, the boundaries of the masjid. So what does he do? Something, it's very interesting what the Prophet does here. He asks Abu Bakr to mount the she-camel that he had. وَيَسِيرُ بِهَا لِيَخُطَّ الْمَسْجِدَ عَلَى مَا تَدُورُ عَلَيْهِ The Prophet says to Abu Bakr that mount the camel and walk with the camel and we will set the boundary of the masjid based on the path that the camel takes. So if it walks, so the, the circumference that that would that represents the path of the camel will be the the boundaries of Masjid Quba. Abu Bakr he mounts the camel. He's holding the reins, and the narration says, "Falam Falam The the camel did not move. The Prophet then he says. Abu Bakr comes down, the camel doesn't move. فَأَمَرَ عُمَرْ فَكَذَلِكَ He asks Umar to mount the camel. Again, the camel does not move. فَأَمَرَ عَلِيًّا And then the Prophet ﷺ, he commands Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib to mount the camel. The camel began to move when Amir al-Mu'mineen sat on it. And it walked in, it went around. So the boundaries, the boundary of the masjid was drawn based on the path of the camel. And the Prophet ﷺ, what does he say? وَقَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ إِنَّهَا مَأْمُورًا The Prophet says that the, the camel is commanded by God. Meaning that this is not arbitrary. The camel is being guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now it's interesting and we'll see this time and time again in the seerah of the Prophet and especially in the battle of Khaybar where you see the Prophet gives an opportunity to Abu Bakr and Umar 
to demonstrate their merit and their virtue. You know, in the Battle of Khaybar, they were given the the standard. Uh, they were given the standard. They were leading the armies, but they failed. Abu Bakr failed, Umar ibn al-Khattab failed, and then it was given to Ali. And it seems that the Prophet does this, so no one would argue that, oh, the Prophet is giving Ali special treatment, that he doesn't give us an opportunity to demonstrate our devotion and our valor. The Prophet, it seems that he wants to reveal to the people that Ali ibn Abi Talib is unique. He cannot be compared to others. Now in any case, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, he rides the camel that delineated the limits of the masjid. And the stones that Ammar ibn Yasir gathered, it seems that he gathered those stones and he put them along the circumference so they would, so they would know uh, the boundaries and the limits of Masjid Quba. Now, why did the Prophet ﷺ agree to establish a masjid? This was the first thing that the Prophet did. Now, as you know, brothers and sisters, Yathrib was comprised of two rival tribes, Al-Aws and Khazraj. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they were willing to embrace the Prophet, because they needed someone who could serve as an arbiter, someone who could fill that supreme judicial role in Medina. So there was a lot of rivalry, rivalry and tension between Al-Aws and Khazraj. And now the Prophet was worried that there might be divisions now between the Muhajireen and the Ansar. The Prophet wanted to remove all of these labels and all of these uh, you know, th- these divisions by establishing a masjid where everyone can come together and truly feel that sense of unity and brotherhood. Now, of course, the Prophet acknowledged that there are Muhajireen and the Ansar, but these labels should never prevent us from treating each other as brothers and sisters in faith. And the Prophet was so passionate about the construction of this masjid, that he himself partakes in the building of the masjid. The Prophet was actually carrying bricks. He was carrying rocks. He was actively building the masjid. And some of the companions, when they saw the Prophet sweating, narrations even mentioned that Hamza tried to prevent him from uh, doing the manual labor. They told the Prophet, sit, you relax, we'll build it. The Prophet ﷺ ignored them. He wanted to build the masjid with his own sweat. What's interesting, and unfortunately this is not mentioned often enough, we have narrations that mention that the female companions of the Prophet also joined the construction efforts. Now the men would build during the day, you know, it was hot, and they would work during the day. And the women would work and they would build during the night. Now, the reason why it seems that they, they preferred to work at night 
you know, probably because it was cooler, but I think more importantly, because they did not feel comfortable doing manual labor in the presence of non-mahram men. You know, it provided them with a certain degree of privacy. So you see that the first masjid in Islam was built, was literally built by both men and women. And the Prophet ﷺ, he had no problem with this. He, he was happy to have the women uh, participate. Masjid Quba was also called Masjid At-Taqwa. And this masjid, Masjid Quba, is actually mentioned in the Quran. In Surah At-Tawbah, verses 107 to 108, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises this masjid as a masjid that was built on piety and sincerity in contrast to Masjid Dharar, which is a masjid that was built by the hypocrites around the time that the Prophet was going towards Tabuk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in Surah At-Tawbah verse 107, وَالَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا مَسْجِدًا ضِرَارًا وَكُفْرًا وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَإِرْصَادًا لِمَنْ حَارَبَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَلَيَحْلِفُنَّ إِنَّ إِنْ أَرَدْنَا إِلَّا حُسْنًا وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدُ إِنَّهُمْ لَكَاذِبُونَ And there are those hypocrites who took for themselves a mosque. Not every mosque is sacred. This is what the Qur'an teaches us. Just because there's a masjid, it doesn't mean that it's a masjid that's worthy of our respect. It doesn't mean that just because it's a masjid, it has sanctity. There are some masajid who are built, there are some mosques that are built with the intention of causing harm and division and disunity among the mu'mineen. And as a station for whoever had warred against Allah and His Messenger before. You know, they used to use that masjid to give safe haven to the enemies of Islam. This masjid was a source of discord between the Muslims. And they will surely swear, we intended only the best. And Allah testifies that indeed they are liars. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says to the Prophet, before the Prophet was preparing to go for Tabuk, they said to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, come and pray in our masjid. The reason why they wanted the Prophet to pray in their masjid is because they wanted to receive, they wanted the Prophet to give legitimacy to that masjid. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, لَا تَقُمْ فِيهِ أَبَدًا لَمَسْجِدٌ أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى مِنْ أَوَّلِ يَوْمٍ أَحَقُّ أَنْ تَقُومَ فِيهِ فِيهِ رِجَالٌ يُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَتَطَهَّرُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُطَّهِرِينَ Allah says to the Prophet, Do not stand for prayer within it. Ever, a mosque founded on righteousness and piety from the first day is more worthy for you to stand in. This masjid, this is a reference to Masjid Quba. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encourages the Prophet to pray there. And look at how Allah describes those who go to that masjid. The people who built this masjid what makes them unique is that they it is a masjid that has people who love to purify themselves. 
Meaning, these are people who truly want to better themselves. And who want Allah to purify, they want Allah to purify their hearts. We have many ahadith, brothers and sisters. We have a number of ahadith which highlight the, the merits of praying at Masjid Quba. Inshallah, if you have the opportunity to go to Medina, this masjid is definitely a site that you should see, that you should visit and offer some prayers at that, uh, at that holy site. There's a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ where he says, Salatun fi masjid Quba ka'umra. Praying in Masjid Quba is like performing the minor Hajj. It's like performing Umrah. This is how, how great this Masjid is. The first Masjid built in Islam. There are some historians that say that the first Masjid was actually built in Habasha, in Abyssinia, where, where the Muslims uh, were living for a period of time. But it seems that uh, the first actual Masjid was uh, was Masjid Quba. Ibn Sa'ad in his Tabaqat, he reports that Kana Rasulullah, just to, just to highlight how much the Prophet loved this Masjid. Kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi yati Masjid Quba kulla sabtin mashiyan. The Prophet used to go to Masjid Quba every Saturday on foot. Meaning he used to travel Three and a half kilometers, at least once a week, and he would go and he would pray. He would pray at this masjid. Abdullah ibn Umar, he says, I saw the Prophet sometimes riding and other times walking. So the Prophet used to frequently uh, visit that masjid. Now, the Prophet, as we mentioned, now that Amir al-Mu'mineen is with him and the construction of Masjid Quba is underway and the Prophet delegates the completion of the Masjid to Ammar ibn Yasir on the way to Medina. Now the Prophet is traveling north. He's in Quba. He's traveling north towards Yathrib, towards Medina. The Prophet, he moved 700 to 800 meters north to the neighborhood of Banu Salim ibn Auf, and the Prophet also inaugurated a mosque for them. At that time, it might it might have been difficult for people to travel to Quba to pray. So the Prophet inaugurated a masjid in that neighborhood and he led Friday prayer there. He led Salatul Jumu'ah there and then he moved toward Medina. Now a question here arises. For those of you who are familiar with the, the chronological order of the revelation of the Qur'an, you know that Salat al-Jumu'ah, that Surat al-Jumu'ah, I'm sorry, Surat al-Jumu'ah was revealed a few years later in Medina. And in Surat al-Jumu'ah, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا نُودِيَ لِلصَّلَاةِ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ فَاسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعَ So how is it possible that the Prophet performed Friday prayer in that masjid which was inaugurated in the neighborhood of Banu Salim ibn Auf when Surah Al-Jum'ah was not revealed until uh, some time later? 
Now, the answer, of course, is that Salat, Surah Al-Jumu'ah, did not establish the Friday prayer. The Friday prayer existed before the revelation of Surah Al-Jumu'ah. Surah Al-Jumu'ah is simply highlighting that when the call is made for Friday prayer, the believers should leave their business transactions and they should attend. So, Surah Al-Jumu'ah does not say that from today, we are mandating Salat Al-Jumu'ah. The, the verses in Surah Al-Jumu'ah simply say, إِذَا نُودِيَ لِلصَّلَاةِ مِنْ يَوْمُ الْجُمُعَةِ فَاسْعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعِ When the call is made, when you are invited towards the Friday prayer, leave behind the matters of dunya and attend. It's important to attend. So this was an admonishment to those companions who would ignore the Friday prayer and they would rather be busy in the marketplace. Now, after the Prophet, he prays the Friday prayer, he travels north towards Medina. The Prophet was riding his camel, the same camel that he came to Medina with. When he, this was the same camel that he used for his hijrah. And Ali was with him. Ali was with him from Quba until he entered Medina. And unfortunately, this is a part of the seerah of the Prophet that's not mentioned. That Ali ibn Abi Talib was with him and he did not leave the side of the Prophet. Yamshi bimashi. The Prophet, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, was, he accompanied the Prophet every step of the way as he traveled from Quba to Medina. وَلَيْسَ يَمُرُّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ بِبَطْنٍ مِنْ بُطُونِ الْأَنصَارِ إِلَّا قَامُوا إِلَيْهِ يَسْأَلُونَهُ أَنْ يَنْزِلَ عَلَيْهِمْ Now as the Prophet is moving towards Medina, of course he's, he's traveling through these different neighborhoods, and people see Rasulullah and Ali ibn Abi Talib, and many of them, they recognize the Prophet, because many of the Ansar, they had pledged allegiance to the Prophet in the second Aqaba pledge, at least 70 of them. So they knew what the Prophet looked like. Many of them knew him. And they were all asking the Prophet to stay with them. All of them wanted to host the Prophet. So again, the Prophet says, I'll let the camel decide who is going to host me. And this is the genius of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa brothers and sisters. Remember that there is a, there's still tension between the Aus and the Khazraj. Because the residents of Medina, they're either on the side of the Aus tribe or the Khazraj tribe. And if the Prophet chooses someone Let's say he chooses to stay at, at the house of someone who belongs to the tribe of Khazraj. Perhaps this would disappoint the Aus and vice versa. So the Prophet very wisely says the camel will, will choose and it is guided by God. Khallu sabil al-naqa fa'innaha ma'mura. 
Allah will guide the camel to rest at the place that he wants me to be. So, it's also keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that when the Prophet was in, in Quba, he was staying with a clan that belonged to the tribe of Al-Aws. Now, so keep that in mind. So he's, the Prophet stays in Quba for some... Mas'udi says one month. Baladuri says seven months the Prophet was in Quba. In any case... فَانْطَلَقَتْ بِهِ The camel started to move. وَرَسُولُ اللَّهُ وَاضِعُ لَهَا زَمَامَهَا The Prophet let go of the reins of the camel. حَتَّنْ تَهَتْ إِلَى الْمَوْضِعِ And by the way, this narration is from Imam al-Sajjad in Al-Kafi. The Prophet let go of the reins, he released the reins, and the camel walked and walked until it rested at this place, and Imam al-Sajjad, as he's telling the story, he points at the gate to the Masjid of the Prophet. وَأَشَارَ بِيَدِهِ إِلَىٰ بَابِ مَسْجِدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ He pointed to the gate, which is the entrance to the Prophet's mosques. الَّذِي يُصَلِّي عِنْدَهُ بِالْجَنَازِ And this is where, historically, the Salatul Mayyit, the Janazah prayers would be recited, the funeral prayers. In any case, فَوَقَفَتْ عِنْدَهُ وَبَرِكَتْ وَوَضَعَتْ جَرَانَهَا عَلَى الْأَرْضِ The camel placed its belly on the earth. It sat. فَنَزَلَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ So the Prophet, you know, the Prophet is on the, the camel. He let go of the reins. And the Prophet came down from the camel. And where did the camel stop? It stopped in front of the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. And incidentally, Abu Ayyub was one of the poorest people in Yathrib. He was very poor. Abu Ayyub. Abu Ayyub was so excited that the camel of the Prophet settled in front of his house وَأَقْبَلَ أَبُوْ أَيُّوبُ مُبَادِرًا He rushed and he grabbed the Prophet's bags, whatever he was carrying. حَتَّى احْتَمَلَ رَحْلَهُ فَأَدْخَلَهُ مَنْزِلًا Abu Ayyub took in the bags immediately. Before anyone tries to interfere, he takes the bags of the Prophet and he puts it inside of his house. وَنَزَلَ رَسُولُ اللَّهُ وَعَلِيٌّ مَعَ Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib and the Prophet, they enter the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari hatta bana lahu masjidahu hatta buniya lahu masjidahu wa baytuhu wa buniyat lahu masakinuhu wa manzilu wa manzilu aliyan fatahawwala ila manazilihima the prophet and imam ali ibn abi talib they stay with abu ayyub al-ansari until the masjid of the prophet is built and until they build a house for the Prophet and also they build a living space, a house, a place for Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam. And uh, so I made a mistake. So the Prophet, he spent a few days in uh, in Quba. He stays for about 
one month to seven months in the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari waiting for the masjid and his home and the home of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib to be built, the, uh, an apartment for them to be built. So who is Abu Ayyub al-Ansari? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari was the man who hosted the Prophet according to some reports for seven months. Now Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, his full name is Khalid ibn Kulayb ibn al-Najjar and he was a member of the tribe of Khazraj. So you see, when the Prophet was in Quba, he was staying with a clan which belonged to the tribe of Al-Aws. When he enters into Yathrib, the camel guides the Prophet to the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari who belongs to the Khazraj. So both the Aws and the Khazraj can claim that we hosted the Prophet and the Prophet was a guest with us. Now Abu Ayyub was among the 70 who gave bay'ah, who gave allegiance to the Prophet, that they would not abandon his support. So Abu Ayyub, he came to Mecca with approximately 70 uh, Ansar and they gave bay'ah to the Prophet. And as I mentioned, Rasulullah he stays with Abu Ayyub, according to some reports, for seven months. Now, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari is a unique companion of the Prophet because after the demise of the Prophet Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and 11 other companions defended the succession of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. So he was a muwali of Amir al-Mu'mineen Abu Ayyub fought alongside Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib in all of the battles that Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib fought. He, he participated in Jamal, in Safin, and in Nahrawan. In the battle of Nahrawan against the Khawarij, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib appointed Abu Ayyub as a commander of, for the horsemen. And he was the, the Imam asked him to also negotiate and advise the Khawarij. So you see that there was a level of trust that the Prophet had, that Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib had in Abu Ayyub. Now after, after Nahrawan, for a period, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib appointed Abu Ayyub al-Ansari as the governor of Medina. So this is a man, he, he's not only a man who's skilled in battle, not only is he an expert negotiator, but he has administrative skills, he has leadership qualities. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib appoints him as the governor of Medina in his last days. Now after the martyrdom of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, Abu Ayyub, once again, he goes to the borders for war. And he dies in 52 AH, 52 years after the Hijrah, while in Constantinople. And at that time it was being besieged by the Muslims. Now Sunni scholars of Rijal, they consider him to be a great companion of the Prophet and they consider him to be reliable, meaning they rely on his ahadith. Shia scholars have praised him, but there are some Shi'i scholars who have reservations. They admit that yes, he supported Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, but they have a question mark about his participation in the wars under the reign of Muawiyah. 
Now, Sayyid al-Khu'i, and this is just kind of a, an, uh, an extra piece of knowledge for those who are interested. Sayyid al-Khu'i, he believed that it's possible that someone like Abu Ayyub al-Ansari would not join and fight in the forces of Muawiyah unless he sought permission from Imam al-Hassan. So perhaps there was a greater good that was being achieved, the expansion of the Islamic empire, and perhaps he uh, took permission from Imam al-Hassan salam to fight in those uh, battles. So the Prophet, he stays with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib is also there. Uh, the Prophet presumably also has uh, some of the female uh, members, if there was enough space. The historians don't really mention where the, uh, the three Fatimas were. But uh, the Prophet was definitely with Abu Ayyub. And what's interesting, if you look at just the, the adab of Abu Ayyub, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari insists that the Prophet stays on the lower floor, the ground level. Because it seems that it was a two-story or a multi-story home. And it seems that the Prophet ﷺ, that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari wanted the Prophet to be comfortable coming and going. Because if he was on the second floor, he would have to seek permission and the woman would probably have to cover. And then it would be difficult for the Prophet to move about. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari gives the Prophet the lower floor. So he's free to come and go as he likes. And he took, Abu Ayyub took his family and they uh, stayed on the second floor. Now you can only imagine how much food people were bringing to the Prophet. People would take turns. Everyone wanted to provide food to the Prophet And the Prophet, being the humble person that he is, he used to eat whatever was available. The Prophet was never uh, picky about uh, what he was uh, uh, given. Usually when the story of the Hijrah is mentioned, and especially the, the arrival of the Prophet in Medina, and perhaps many of you, when you saw the, the movie, The Message, you saw that when the Prophet entered Medina, the, the Muslims, the Ansar, they all came together and they were singing and they were reciting This famous uh, recitation that is often mentioned alongside uh, the, the Prophet's arrival in Medina. Now, this song or this recitation is actually not mentioned by any of the major histories. It's not mentioned by Ibn Ishaq, it's not mentioned by Ibn Hisham, it's not, it's, it's not, there's no mention of it in any of the, the, uh, the classical works. Furthermore, what makes it highly unlikely that this, was, this song was recited is because if you look at the expression thanai, thanai, uh, thani, refers to the northwest entrance of the city. We, as we mentioned, the city of Medina is surrounded and 
one of the entrances into the city was from the northwest. And this was called Thaniyatul Wada' because people would go, when they would travel, they would farewell their loved ones. This was the point of entry and the point of exit. So Thaniyatul Wada' or the farewell pass refers to a mountain pass in the northwest corner of the city. The Prophet, when he arrived in Medina, he entered from the southeast. Thaniyatul Wada' refers to the northwest entrance. Now, some say that there were two entrances. There was a northwest entrance and there was a a southeast entrance. And they were both mountain passes. So what's the problem? The problem is that the northwestern pass was only named Thaniyatul Wada' when the Prophet returned from Khaybar in the seventh year after the Hijrah, when he told his soldiers to bid farewell to the Mut'a wives. And this shows you that even in the Sunni tradition, they all believe that the temporary marriage was practiced, and then it was later banned. But there's no doubt. So those who say that, you know, this is a type of adultery, that means that you're, you're, you're claiming that the Prophet for a period permitted something that was like adultery. So all Muslims unanimously believe that this marriage uh, existed. Now, some have tried to use the poem, to justify the permissibility of women singing in front of men. Some of the more liberal uh, Muslim thinkers have tried to make this argument. Now, The problem with this argument is, number one, there's a difference between reciting and singing. Who said that the women were singing There's a difference between reciting and singing because, you know, I think we can distinguish between singing and reciting. That's number one. Number two, even if we assume that they were singing, it's possible that singing was not yet prohibited. There are, for example, alcohol, the consumption of wine, it was gradually banned. There were some companions of the Prophet who were still drinking when the Prophet entered Medina. And then Allah gradually banned it. For example, Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, la taqrabu salah wa antum sukara. Do not approach the prayer while you're drunk. Now this doesn't mean that it's okay to drink at other times. The Qur'an is gradually trying to, to weed the Muslims off of the, uh, their addiction to wine and alcohol. So, so the reason why this argument doesn't stand is because even if we assume that the women were singing, maybe singing in front of men was not yet prohibited. But now we have clear evidence that it's haram for a woman to sing in front of a non-mahram. Number three, even if it was prohibited at the time, the Prophet ﷺ being the wise teacher that he is, he's going to choose a more appropriate time to admonish the people. He's just arriving, the people have welcomed him into his city. Do you think the Prophet is going to tell them, no, 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 it's haram, don't sing. Of course, the Prophet, Allah says in the Qur'an, ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati wal al We need to have wisdom when we invite people to the truth. 
The Prophet probably, if we assume that it was haram and they, they were committing haram in front of the Prophet, the Prophet knows when is the best time to admonish people. And that was not an appropriate time. And furthermore, when people recite collectively, it's almost impossible to discern an individual's voice. So to say that it's halal for a woman to sing in front of non-mahram men because, of, because women were singing Tala al-Badru alayna, the entire community, if we assume this to be true, the entire community was singing. And when there's a collective recitation, you cannot discern the, uh, the individual's voice. Now, in conclusion, some of the practical lessons that we can draw from what we mentioned in today's uh, lesson is number one, the significance of establishing mosques with pure intentions. Masjid Quba is a unique mosque. It's a sacred mosque, not because of its architecture, not because it was designed with unique stones or bricks. It was a sacred mosque because of the sacredness of the intentions. Because the people who built it had pure intentions. It was a masjid that was built on taqwa. Number two, when the Prophet was building Masjid Quba, he encouraged everyone to participate. Ammar ibn Yasir, who was the project manager, he was a slave. He doesn't come from you know, a prominent family. So the Prophet ﷺ invited community members to be participants in the establishing of a masjid. He wanted everyone to join in because he wanted to give everyone a sense of ownership that this is our masjid. It's, it's not a masjid that belongs to the elite. This is the masjid that belongs to the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the Arab, the non-Arab. This masjid belongs to everybody. Number three, what we learn from these reports is the importance of making women feel included in the activities of the masjid, especially in the establishment of the masjid. They should not be treated as second-class members. The Prophet ﷺ did not object to the women helping with the construction of the masjid. They played a role, they had a voice. And number four, the camel guiding the Prophet to stay with Abu Ayyub is a reminder. And this, this, this camel was guided by God. Allah wanted the Prophet to be hosted by Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, who was poor. Meaning, the lesson here is that we should not give priority to the wealthy members of the community. We should not make those who are less financially privileged feel that they're second-class community members. Everyone deserves access to the Prophet. So the Prophet is not just a Prophet for the elite. The Prophet is the Messenger of God who is available to all. And therefore, we should not make our masajid elitist mosques. We should not make our educational institutions elitist. We should make them accessible to all Muslims from all walks of life. Uh, that concludes our discussion uh, for this episode. Uh, please join me in uh, upcoming episodes of the life of Prophet Muhammad. 
Thank you so much for tuning in, my dear brothers and sisters. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.